0: This is Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Our guest today is Chris Edwards. He's the director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. Welcome back to the show, Chris.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, guys.
0: President Biden seems to have a lot of very big plans. Can you give us a sense of just how big these are?
1: Yeah, the, over the pandemic, over the last year, the federal government passed about $3 trillion of relief spending, an absolutely enormous amount of money. Even if uh, President Biden doesn't pass his latest two, $2 trillion plans, federal spending this year is going to be around $6.8 trillion, and tax revenues are only going to be around $3.4 trillion. So we're going to be, just this year, we'll be pushing another $3 trillion Dollars of borrowing uh, and costs off to future generations. It's it's extraordinary what's going on in Washington, and it really isn't gonna. uh, It's not going to end well.
2: Yeah, that's sort of what we were talking about today. Not exactly these programs per se, which are sort of all of your expected big government programs that many people on the left have been pushing, and maybe a few more. But kind of the lessons of how governments the government fails in general, Um, and it is kind of interesting where. It, it, I'm sure to you, Chris, it seems like that it, these people have never studied past programs and why past programs are failed because they just think that this time we can get this thing to work and do all this. Um, so just like, as an outset, like is this is this more – is this bigger than like say New Deal programs or other things that have failed in the past? Um, uh, it's something that we should be aware of and then we can get to exactly how they fail.
1: You know, the, I think the central failing, uh, with all these programs Biden is proposing and some of them that Republicans support. So, you know, new, new social programs like for paid leave or new infrastructure programs that Republicans support is the, uh, the pushing aside of federalism that, uh, you know, if, if a new paid leave program makes sense, well, then state governments can and will do it. And indeed, eight states already have paid leave programs. And you can debate the merits of those, but, if a state wants to do that, they can do that. Uh, state governments can raise their own money anytime to expand their highway system, and many raise their own gas taxes uh, uh, frequently. So uh, the first question that reporters never seem to ask the federal politicians is, why does the federal government need to do this? What is there some failure at the state legislative level that, you know, is there some reason they can't do it? Um, so, you know, and this goes to the b- basic problem of at the state level and local level, on policymakers, they have they can balance the costs and benefits of programs much better. They generally must balance their budgets. If they want to build a new highway or have a new paid leave program, they got to raise the taxes to do it. So they got to convince enough voters to support the tax hikes for the new program at the federal government level federal government runs massive deficits, and you have this severe log rolling problem that people routinely vote for programs that do not have true majority support in the nation. Uh, and so all these, these bad programs get passed in Washington. Um, and so, you know, the solution is federalism, that we need to let state level policymakers balance the costs and benefits.
0: And we've had large federal programs for a long time. But has there been an increase or a change in thinking about the balance between doing things at the federal level and at the state level as we've seen an increase in, I guess, the nationalization of politics? Like, it seems like, you know, we, we talk about, there talks about like the a shrinking of state and local media coverage in favor of coverage of federal level things, that that's the politics, federal level politics are what people pay attention to. And I'm wondering if that's created a perception, a changing perception of the country as the country is this one big thing governed by the federal government, therefore the federal government should do stuff versus it's a collection of states.
1: That's right. If you go back a century, most government in America was at the state and local level and the federal government was very uh, small. That changed during the 20th century. Uh, I think there's two main reasons for it. One is once we had an income tax in place and that income tax uh, became uh, progressive, in other words, hitting higher earners more uh the political left uh favored pushing up spending to the federal level. If you fund a program like paid leave at the state level, the taxation for it will be roughly proportional. If you push it to the federal level, you can raise most of the money from higher earners. So that was so the left has liked centralization and they constantly push for it. Uh, the other thing that's happened is uh lobby groups. You go back to the federal the first federal highway program Past a century ago in 1916, uh, if you look at the history of that, you see that, uh, you know, Henry Ford had his automobile, there became a demand for uh, better roads in the country. Uh, these state automobile associations started forming, and initially they started lobbying their state legislatures for better roads. Then they realized, hey, we can go to Washington and lobby a single legislature to get this money for roads that we want. And then the other lobby groups started figuring this out. Educational lobby groups realized, hey, if we go to Washington, we just have to lobby one legislature to get additional spending rather than um, going around to the 50-state capitals. So there's a lot more efficiency in lobbying at the federal level.
2: It's interesting because when we get into some of these failures, one of my big sort of pet peeves in policy debates is comparing America to, say, Denmark on a question of, say, healthcare. Uh, or, or really anything uh, where it says, well, if Denmark can do it, if they could have a centrally planned like single-payer healthcare or any other, say, Scandinavian country, then why can't America do it? And it seems that one thing that they're just missing is there are fundamentally different rules for governing 330 million people. Versus, say, I don't know, twenty million d- in Denmark. That's just a guess. Uh, this is not a category. This is not like an incremental difference. It's a categorical difference, and that doesn't even bring in this, the federal system of America. There's just never really thought about how, when you compare America to any European country, it doesn't make sense on a scale size. It would be more comparable to the entire EU. And look how ungovernable that is if you tried to put something in place. But no one ever seems to bring this up that that, that we are we were split up into units for a reason.
1: Yeah, government fails for basic structural reasons that, that we all uh, know about. I mean, the government uses coercion and it replaces uh, voluntary exchanges in the marketplace that are mutually beneficial. Government programs, you know, use top-down, one-size-fits-all solutions. So governments, all governments have these sorts of failures, but you're right that the, because the federal government is so massive, it creates a special and additional failures. The federal government, for example, Uh, has 2,300 different subsidy and benefit programs. The federal budget is a hundred times bigger than the average state government budget in the United States. A hundred times Larger, so you know that means that you know legisl- legislators are supposed to oversee all these programs to make sure they work. They're supposed to weed out the ones that don't work and cancel them. Uh, they never do. They don't have time, as we all know. Federal members of Congress—they spend most of their, their time uh, raising money and giving speeches. They don't have time to weed out the programs that don't that don't work. So. Uh, At the state and local level, uh, there's much more pressure on uh, policymakers uh, to make sure programs work because they have to raise the taxes to fund them. uh, And there are fewer programs that can keep a closer eye on them. The federal government, uh, you know, has just descended into this uh, kind of circus where there's really very little oversight of programs.
0: Before we get to the sources of government failure, I want to clarify what we mean by that term. Because one way to think of it is, the government has a certain aim and institutes a program in order to achieve that aim, and then it fails because it doesn't achieve that aim or it achieves it poorly or it achieves it, you know, in a much more expensive way than it otherwise could or so on. The other way we could think about failure is the government has a certain purpose. The things that it's doing violate that purpose, and therefore it's failing in its its obligations, its goals. And those are two different ways to think about it. And it sounds like in the conversation so far, you are using it potentially in both ways.
1: Right. So my... 2015 Cato study called Why the Federal Government Fails. Uh, I, you know, I had to confront that issue and I, and I say in that study that indeed, you know, whether you're liberal, conservative, libertarian, you have different conceptions of government failure. I divide government failure sort of how, uh, you, you uh, expressed it there, but, uh, two ways. One is, uh, operational failures. These are things we're all familiar with, uh, you know, red tape costs, bureaucratic failures, fraud, corruption, uh, pork barrel politics. Uh, those are operational failures. But then the second uh, category is intervention failures, where the federal government comes in and takes over uh, functions that ought to be in the private sector or handled at the state and local government level. These are failures because, you know, if the federal government, say, takes over um, paid leave for the country, um, they're going to do it uh, less efficiently than if you left it at the state, local or private level. So it's a failure of intervention. Federal policymakers shouldn't have got involved. And, for, and from a libertarian perspective, one of the big failures with Washington is that they they impose all these policies on Americans that undermine our freedom, uh, our personal freedom and prosperity. So um, you know, while policy makers might. Have all kinds of economic arguments for programs. If they intervene, uh, in certain ways and, you know, damage our freedom, which is, you know, it's hard to measure. That's, you know, that's a, that's a failure. Our our federal government shouldn't be doing that. We have constitutional, uh, rights that they should be protecting. Uh, but, you know, often in their, um, their efforts to please, you know, the, the, the public in the short term, they take all these policy actions that damage, that damage our freedom. And that's a big problem too.
2: So you've created a kind of taxonomy of government failure and and how you see specific reasons why government fails, and we can get into even, you know, why that might be worse at the federal level and the state level, something we've already mentioned, but I think we can kind of like go into this and just look at your, one of your first reasons, which is top level coercion, which, which kind of describes what government does to some extent. Uh, So is that, is that, how is that a source of failure for the government? Well, you know,
1: markets in free society, there's, you know, is, is, um, uh, composed of voluntary exchanges, which are mutually beneficial. You go to the grocery store, you buy groceries, you benefit the, the, the grocery store benefits. How do we know that? Well, because you did the, vo- the transaction voluntarily. Government doesn't work like that. It uses top-down coercion. It forces people, forces taxes out of people, forces regulations on people. So that means it destroys information when it takes action and it has to use guesswork. So, you know, how does how do wine and beer producers know whether to produce more wine or beer? Well, they can look at market signals and prices and demands. But how does the government decide whether it should spend more money on, say, fighter jets or food stamps? It has no metrics. It has no. Uh, there's no market signals to tell it what it should produce. It's all guesswork. So that's one of the basic problems with a, with uh, coercion and government action. Another basic problem is that co- coercive action creates winners and losers. In the marketplace, generally, uh, transactions are mutually beneficial. They're win-win. Governments don't work like that. They create winners and losers. They create a new subsidy program. They have to forcibly extract taxes from people. Uh, to use to spend on other people. When they impose regulations, they create winners and losers. So that's there's these basic problems with government action uh, that you can't really get around. And it's why we should leave most activities in society in the private marketplace.
0: But it seems like someone who is calling for more intervention would say, All of that is true, that the government does distort prices, it does change the distribution of goods, it does allow some companies to thrive while others are, you know, driven out of business or harmed, but that that's exactly the point. That's not a problem. That's what we're trying to do because we, the the people pushing for policy or the policymakers have looked at what the market has done in given areas without you know, on its own and decided it's the distributions aren't good or it's not producing enough of what people need or it's charging more than a lot of people can afford for certain things or people are, you know, stuck in jobs that they think are, you know, particularly bad, but don't feel like they have a choice. And so we're going to go in and yes, we're going to use coercion and yes, we're going to distort prices and yes, we're going to pick winners and losers. And maybe there's some problems, you know, where it's not going to be perfect, but it's it's going to be a corrective, at least to the problems we identified in the way the market had been doing things.
1: So there's a bunch of problems with what you just said, uh, Aaron, playing the devil's advocate there. So so one is, is that politicians are always over-optimistic uh, in how they can redesign society, like Adam Smith, you know, think, saying that, you know, politi- leaders think they can move pieces on a chessboard around efficiently. The truth is that when government acts, it destroys a lot of knowledge um, that's in the marketplace. And as I said, what it does is, is just it's wild uh, guesswork. There's no built-in feedback mechanism for government programs. Uh, like you said, a, a policymakers may think they're doing something uh, properly and they put programs in places, but there's really no feedback to determine whether the program uh, is, is working properly or is efficient. Uh, politicians, you know, we can get into this, have all these biases. They buy, they're biased to short-term, creating short-term benefits and pushing out the cost to the future. Uh, there are all kinds of unintended consequences of government, uh, actions. Uh, they, 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 um, you know, let's say they impose an, an ethanol program, uh, on the country, but that raises the prices of, of corn and food products that, that harms lower-income, uh, citizens. So, there's all these uh uh there's all these side effects that they don't take into account. You think about the private sector, private businesses and individuals, they use trial and error. Entrepreneurs experiment, they try uh, they try new products, they get feedback, they can make adjustments. Governments don't do that. They have sort of grand central visions, they impose them, and then they never really go back to double check that it really works. They've got no real way of measuring whether programs work. So, um, you know, I, I would just, you know, ask policymakers to be just a hell of a lot more humble about, you know, what they think is sort of their optimal design of society.
2: There's got to be some way to to at least measure whether a program works. And, And I mean, I'm thinking there's two things, two types of things that I'm thinking of here that have these characteristics. So one would be a program, like a physically built thing. So I was thinking of light rail. Like all the light rail throughout the cities that were built. There's one in Denver that was built when I lived there. It happened all over the country. And they said, you know, this is using coercion. Yes, but we're doing this to, uh, eliminate pollution and congestion. Uh, and so we can, we can measure if something like a light rail works, uh, by saying, okay, we've eliminated this much pollution and this much congestion. Or if it's a program like Medicare, we can say, well, we've, we can, figure out how many life years have been saved through medicare spending so there's there's some way that even even though you're doing coercion you you can you can figure out whether or not it's working it seems to me
1: so, so, so this raises the issue of cost-benefit analysis. Well, economists have this thing called cost-benefit analysis. You can take any program or regulation uh, and and try to do a, a sophisticated calculation whether the benefits to society uh, outweigh the costs or not. And indeed, we do this for most federal regulations, as you know, Trevor is an expert on regulation. The, the legislative branch has uh, forced the most of the. Uh, executive branch to do cost benefit analysis on regulation, but interestingly, those two thousand three hundred federal spending programs that I mentioned uh, that Congress uh, imposes on us, it does not do cost benefit analysis of its spending programs. So, for example, you know, so it, uh, does the food stamp program create more benefits than costs? Well, we have no idea because we've never done a cost benefit analysis of it, and there is no requirement to do that. The Congressional Budget Office doesn't do it. I mean, I think one step forward would be to require a cost benefit analysis for federal spending programs. So that's, so that's one thing. And then the other thing, of course, let's get back to federalism. Who can better, but if, if, um, we, no one knows exactly the, the benefits of all these, uh, federal programs, uh, especially the, the social welfare programs, who better to balance the costs and benefits than state and local politicians who are direct, who are closer to the citizens, that benefit from the programs and are closer to the taxpayers who pay for them. I mean, one of the problems with the federal government is all these programs get enacted that have very low value are, are not in the broad public uh, interest. Why? Because of log rolling, which is a, a fundamental structural uh, problem uh, in the federal legislature that that uh, results in many low-value programs being enacted. So to get back to your light rail, Trevor, uh, the problem here is, the main problem is that the federal government has subsidized state governments and city governments to, uh, to put in place these light rail systems. There's about 40 cities now that have put in light rail. Uh, that's just in the last few uh, decades. I bet most of those would not have put light rail systems in. Because bus systems are cheaper and more flexible, uh, if it wasn't f- uh, for federal subsidies showering down on them.
0: You mentioned log rolling. Can you tell us what that is and how it works in practice? So, so
1: log rolling is just horse trading in Congress. It's so. so Log rolling works uh, uh, this way. You know, if you, let's say you've got uh, in the House of Representatives, you've got ten congressmen over here. They've got an idea for a really dumb, low-value program that's bad for the nation but benefits their states. Uh, they're they're frustrated because they can't get anyone else to support it. Then on the other side, another the other uh, part of the the, the House of representatives, representatives, you've got another ten congressmen with a different program that also only benefits their states, but it's bad for the country. Uh, what's the what's the political solution here? The political solution is these two groups get together, and they get they get together with other groups who have narrow benefit programs. They get narrow majorities uh, and and pass these programs into law. So most Americans probably have this conception of democracy as uh you know serious uh, uh policy makers get together and they pass programs that are in the broad general interest and that have broad support but that is not how congress works that is not how most federal programs Get enacted as the federal government has become bigger and bigger and bigger. log rolling has become much more powerful and much more dominant. Uh, these massive omnibus bills, like farm bills, are passed with literally hundreds of different subsidy programs in them. None of which would pass if they had to uh, if they had standalone votes in Congress. So many programs get enacted that don't have true majority support.
2: It seems to me that if you put all that together, you get just a huge amount of the government. I mean, it'd be hard to measure that that literally would not have been passed by a majority vote, which is kind of shocking if you think about it. So, you know, the interesting
1: thing about log roll, and so that is a word that comes out of the 19th century. I go uh, in my uh, Cato study, why the federal government fails into some of the 19th century history. Uh, the, as early as the 1820s, the, uh, the the federal government created the Army Corps of Engineers to be the uh, of course the engineering resource for the the U.S. Uh, military, but then pretty soon members of Congress realized they could get this. This expert group of engineers to, uh, to build infrastructure in their districts. So Congress started, uh, passing, uh, bills, dumping in dozens of, uh, projects for their districts, uh, to be, uh, to be paid for by the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, rather than their own state legislature. And people started noticing very early on that a lot of wasteful projects seemed to get jammed into these, um, uh, these bills. Very early on, another example is post offices. You know, the federal government from the beginning, of course, has had the power um, to spend on post offices. and um, uh, at, at first, each individual post office was voted on separately in standalone votes. but then they started bundling dozens and dozens of them together toward the end of the 19th century, and people began noticing that a lot of these post offices were not needed and wasteful. So this problem has only got worse as the federal government got bigger. Congress doesn't doesn't have time literally to pass all these programs separately. It bundles them into them into massive omnibuses. And so that's why, you know, we get much more waste today because of these omnibus bills.
0: I just have to ask about post offices, because why are they such a thing when it comes to Congress? Like in in these various towns, they can't employ that many people. Like what is what is it about post offices that gives that makes them so front and center in so many of these legislative log rolling?
1: It's a good it's a good question. You know, I've I've argued for a long time and written at Cato that the U.S. postal system ought to be privatized as it has been privatized in in uh, a number of other countries. Uh, there's a, the post office itself estimates that there's about thirty thousand locations across the country that only get two or three customers a day, literally. Um, they the post office itself wants to close these locations and has for many years, but it, it is prevented because uh, of, by doing so because individual members of Congress will fight to the death for the uh, post office locations in their district. I mean, where I live in uh, Arlington, Virginia, there's two U.S. post office locations within half a mile of each other. It's completely it's completely stupid. It makes no sense at all. And one of them ought to be closed. Any business, you know, would close one of these locations. But of course, this is this is a general problem in, in uh, with the federal government. The federal government tries to run businesses where the uh, where it doles out the benefits broadly uh, to every member of Congress rather than making sort of rational business decisions.
2: Another reason that you cite for government failure is lack of knowledge Um, and you you write that the federal government lacks knowledge about our complex society. But I mean the people in the federal government are members of that complex society and the federal government is pretty big. So it seems like they have some knowledge of, of our society or at least to be able to do some things.
1: Uh you know not really um and I let's go back to something I said earlier that you know the problem with the way government acts is it uses coercion which destroys inf- the creation of information markets generate information when when people trade and make mutual uh mutually beneficial um um choices and decisions uh they generate information on prices Entrepreneurs can experiment with new products and find out whether they work or not. There's feedback, as we talked about. There's trial and error. Uh, government has none of that information. Um, so, you know, experts can sit in Washington, uh, and in, even if they're well-meaning and they, and they, um, they're smart people. Um, you know, they just they don't have access to the information when the government acts because they've destroyed information. I mean, just, you know, like the postal system, for example, the post office has a monopoly on on letter mail. So we don't know how efficiently mail can be. Um, delivered in the nation because we have a legal national monopoly on it. So uh, by contrast, in the private sector, entrepreneurs competing against each other generate information about how much things really cost and how efficient you know we can get in, in certain activities.
2: An example that I always cite for that is state-run liquor stores or state States that have state-run liquor stores, provided liquor stores like Virginia versus states like Colorado that have private liquor stores. And as you might expect in Virginia, like when the government supplies something like that, they either always oversupply it like the post office or undersupply it because there are like 10 liquor stores in Northern Virginia. But in Colorado, basically every strip mall can sustain a liquor store. But the, the interesting question is how many liquor stores should there be? and how anyone in the government could answer that question, right? I, th- I think that's basically what you're getting at.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the, a basic government tends to use one-size-fits-all solutions. Markets and free society uh, tend to enjoy massive uh, diversity, and coercion destroys that diversity. Uh, you know, who who knows what in the, the, in the next big technology in Silicon Valley is going to be. Um, we've got hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs and businesses trying to discover it, getting feedback from customers. We don't know. But then here comes in President Biden. He has got wants to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on certain technologies like electric vehicles, for example. Well, how do they know electric vehicles are the best uh, way to go? Maybe hydrogen cars will be the the real future of American transportation. But, you know, he's going to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars on electric vehicles, which is going to preclude markets from moving towards possibly more efficient solutions. Or, you know, we subsidize wind and solar power. they they seem like maybe a good idea, but but maybe solar power is much better than wind. But we don't know because the government massively subsidizes both of them. So we're not letting markets generate the information about which activities are actually worthwhile.
0: On the liquor store thing, though, I mean, it seems like, you could have these big government programs while having mechanisms for, you know, not over or under supplying like and maybe this question was answered by our Postal Service conversation. But if if Virginia, Virginia runs its Virginia ABC stores, which are the only place to buy liquor and they're state run. But if there are a ton of them and they're not selling very much such that, you know, they're not they're not earning a profit why can't the state of Virginia just say, just like any other business, because there are chains of stores all over the place, you know, and those chains can shut down underperforming branches. Why can't the government say we it turns out we don't actually need this many ABC stores within this radius. We're going to close three of them.
1: Well, for one thing, we don't uh, if if the government has a monopoly on something, we don't know what the, the true costs are. We don't we don't know what the you know, what sort of efficiency we could be wringing out of the system. So. Um, you know the the virginia alcohol stores might be earning a profit but the cost might be vastly inflated and they only earn a profit because they have a monopoly and, they, and they're selling a product that's in high demand so you know we don't know the entrepreneurs could come in and sell liquor for half the costs um, they could use their employees more efficiently they could have more efficient management but you know we don't really know that when it's, when the government operates these stores
2: what about the incentives of politicians because you you've Kind of, you, you split up into two different incentives and you mentioned a little bit. There's bureaucratic incentives and there's political incentives. Uh, now that's a feedback mechanism. Um, you know, the, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go and vote out your person who you don't like and you don't like what they're doing. Um, so that would seem to at least somewhat correlate with what people want to some extent, that they, they don't like this thing, so they, they vote them out, and so the politicians would then react by giving people more what they want. Is that, is that a silly kind of possibility, or is that not how it works?
1: I'll give you two problems with that, Trevor. One is what I mentioned about log rolling. Yes, members of Congress, we might assume, vote for the interests of their district, but from the, from the broad general interest of the American public, many, they, many things they vote for are failures for the country, uh, overall, they will always support funding the fighter jet that is built in their district, but that doesn't mean the new fighter jet is actually good. the, the nation really needs that new fighter jet. A second uh, issue is this uh, economists use this wonky phrase called fiscal illusion. Uh, Members of Congress uh, are great at sort of playing hide the cost. Uh, the benefits they advertise, they talk about, they give speeches about the the great, lovely benefits of these programs. Uh, but they don't, they they try to hide the cost. So they hide the cost in many ways. Uh, they borrow money and use debt. So the costs are pushed to the future. Uh, a lot of uh, taxes are raised uh, from businesses. Well, that hides the cost from voters. Um, the, they use complexity in the tax code so the people don't really know how much they're paying for the federal government. Uh, when politicians don't want to raise taxes uh, or debt and they want to uh, force the private sector to do something, they use regulations. You know, regulations imposed on businesses to provide certain benefits to employees. Uh, the employees uh, don't know that, you know, there's a there's a heavy cost to the these benefits they're getting from their business because it's, it's, it's hidden the government has has found a hidden way to impose these costs and then then there's um there, there's uh, when the government has big projects um, they, these big projects like highways and light rail systems they almost always go uh, way over budget uh, the federal government uses salami tactics as it's called so the Pentagon will say oh our new fighter jet you know' is only the program's only going to cost ten billion dollars And then, you know, they start building them. And then down the road, it turns out that the fighter jets actually cost 20 or 30 billion dollars. This is a deliberate strategy. Um, The Pentagon and other agencies with big projects use it. They they claim that the costs are low. But later on, like like slices of salami, they let they they admit more and more uh, that that, that these projects at higher and higher um, costs. So. And that, so, what the point I'm getting at is, politicians have all kinds of strategies they use to hide costs of projects from voters, uh, and they and they tout the benefits.
0: That though describes lots of businesses too. Like every business would love to be able to sell me a cheap product at a high price and profit greatly. And competition is one way that we, you know, that we prevent that from happening. And there isn't really. You know, there's competition at a global level, but not in the same way that there is in markets. But the other way is if I want to know if a restaurant is good or I want to know if a hotel is going to be as clean as they say, I pull up a review site. And and if I see a lot of bad reviews, I don't buy it. And and that those exist to solve this asymmetric information problem that you've just articulated, which is that a lot of the information needed to judge isn't easily accessible, but review sites aggregate it and work, seem to work pretty well, why don't we just have that? Like, yes, the average voter can't parse Congressional Budget Office stuff, but we at the Cato Institute do that all the time. You know, like, why Why isn't that a solution?
1: Well, it is, it is part of the solution. I mean, you know, the government has expert agencies like the government accountability office that, that does examine and analyze programs for failures and the like and produces hundreds of reports, uh, every year. Most members of Congress, uh, ignore them. Uh, the general, they're too kind of wonky for the general public to really, uh, read them. Um, so, the, you know, the, there's a there's a, a general ignorance problem with citizens and the federal government, especially. It's far away in Washington. As I said, it, it runs thousands of programs. Most members of Congress don't have, know how most of these programs work. Uh, they they present only the bright, sunny side of programs to the citizens. Uh, it's so there's just it is it. You know, in the private sector, as you touched on, uh, Aaron, I mean, you know, an entrepreneur can see that the the companies uh, in an industry are doing a crappy job and he or she can think, hey, I can do that better. And we'll jump in and try to do it, uh, do it better. You can't you don't you don't have that in government because, you know, especially the government not only has legal monopolies, but once the government gets involved in something, it's very difficult for private uh, private companies to compete. A good example here is airports. All airports in the United States are owned by governments, all 400 or so major airports. And there's actually no law that says that private companies can't set up airports and operate them, but they, but they're at a huge competitive disadvantage because the government airports are subsidized. Um, and so, the, you know, so government has legal monopolies on some things, but then many other things it does. It crowds out entrepreneurs from getting uh, involved and showing us whether, uh, you know, someone can do the activity better.
2: We talked about political incentives, but another sort of, I think, under, well, under theorized or at least under appreciated aspect of the implementation of any given program Is the bureaucratic incentives. So we have bureaucrats are not elected, maybe they're, you know, they they have civil servant laws and stuff to protect them. Uh, But I know a lot, I mean, I live in, you know, Washington, DC area. I know a lot of people who are. Bureaucrats, in the broadest sense of the word, they all s- seem to want to be doing their job well and they take it very seriously. Uh, so maybe those, you know, and I know in England, you know, they're, they're really big on their civil servants and they have very big civil servant protection laws and they rely upon civil servants and their, their expertise to, you know, even check the political incentives. So so maybe the bureaucrats are the answer here. Uh,
1: well, so. Uh, The way I see the federal government failure is there's there's two groups that sort of fail. There's the politicians fail to enact things that are in the broad public interest for some of the reasons we discussed. And then the the massive bureaucracy, there's about two million federal civilian uh, bureaucrats. Many of them are well-meaning, very smart people. I know many of them uh, as well. Um, my ex-wife worked for the government for a while. These people were often work very hard and are very diligent, but there are basic structural problems with the way the federal government works um, that, that, that make it that make the government agencies work a lot worse than businesses. One is sort of we touched on there's no profit and loss system for the government. Uh, agencies don't know whether their programs make sense or not or, or, or are adding net value to society. Generally businesses in competitive markets, if they're earning profits, they are adding net value to society. Um, government agencies don't know that, uh, businesses that aren't doing a good job lose money and eventually go bankrupt and out of business. Government agencies, there's no similar mechanism where poorly performing agencies go out of business. There's the monopoly problem we touched on. There's, uh, the, there's no pay for performance in the federal government. Federal government workers sort of rise up the salary scale, not based on how well they perform, but based on longevity. Uh, there's very little firing of poor employees in the federal government. In fact, there's, we have good data on this. Federal, uh, government workers are only fired at one sixth of the rate that workers in the private sector are. It's very difficult to get bad, to get rid of bad federal workers. And there's a whole bunch of other problems. You know, there's massive red tape in the federal government. There's massively excess layering of, uh, of, uh, of of bureaucracy in the federal government that is unneeded businesses are much leaner. And, and the last one that, um, uh, gets a lot of attention often the, the two parties accuse each other of this problem. There's about 3000 federal appoint, uh, federal presidential appointees that sit at the top across all the uh, hundreds of federal agencies. They have short-term political motives, um, that are different than the long-term, perhaps more sensible ideas that the career people have, this creates a lot of problems. The political appointees want to get in there. They want to make a quick hit. They don't really care about the long term problems with agencies. They just want to um, do some quick hit um, things that are going to look good on the resume. Then they'll get out out after a year or two. So this whole issue of political appointees is a real problem with the way the federal government operates as well.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the way that budgets for agencies and programs work? Because my understanding is that the way that they get set and then adjusted based on actual spending over the year essentially disincentivizes looking for efficiencies. It disincentivizes programs to look for ways to cut their own costs. Is that true? Sure. I
1: mean, there's been efforts for many, many years, most recently starting with President Clinton and his, uh, he had a big um, uh, uh, project to try to find greater efficiencies in government. And you can make marginal improvements in how federal agencies work. And uh, federal agencies do generally uh, create performance evaluations uh, of their operations every year. And you can actually Google uh, these things you can you know google name of an agency like i don't know federal aviation administration and look for their performance report and and you know agencies are required to report all these metrics but yeah, at the end of the day their their funding comes from taxes uh, their funding is determined by political pressures um, agencies all lobby uh, the president's office of management a budget to give them a bump up in their budget every year Powerful members of Congress who sit, who are chairmen of committees, you know, have favorite agencies and they try to bump up the budget. So uh, th- there's a lot of sort of um, uh, uh, window dressing, I guess you could say, uh, in terms of agent, trying to make agency performance better. But at the end of the day, there's these basic structural problems. That I mentioned, you know, the, the failed programs, you know, last forever and there's no really strong political incentives to get rid of them.
0: I guess the specific thing that I was thinking about is I have heard. And so tell me if this is the case that, like, let's say I have I have my agency and our budget is a million dollars a year um, that if at, by the end of the year I've only spent eight hundred thousand that I have an incentive to find a way to spend the other 200,000 or risk basically having my budget reduced the next year.
1: Right. So that's absolutely right Aaron and in fact this is a widely discussed phenomenon you can actually see it in the data. I mean we have uh you know monthly s- uh, spending data from the federal government and you can see we're toward, toward the end of the fiscal year, September 30 uh, each year, uh, agencies will have discretionary budgets. so if they haven't spent all the money. They try to get it out the door at the last minute on grant programs, on buying equipment, or whatever it is they can do. Uh, that absolutely you you see that uh, you see that happening.
2: But this kind of goes back to my previous question about about other countries, um, but you know, say Denmark, European countries, and a lot of my European friends they they say you know one problem with america is that you have a uniquely bad government like a p- people are not as down on the government uh in places like denmark or scandinavia because they, the government works pretty well and we talked about the size and scope uh issue but the the kind of characteristics that you list the lack of knowledge the coercion political incentives bureaucratic incentives those are all present in the government of Norway, um, so assuming government of Norway is better in many of these things, like uh, why why can they make it work and, and we we such have such a crappy crappy time of it here?
1: So I'm not an expert on cross government, uh, cross country government comparisons, uh, and and I don't actually know the, the basic the, the answer to your question. I'm skeptical that governments in other countries uh, work any better. Or much better than American uh, government. Uh, I do think, as we discussed, that there is a particular problem with the federal government in the United States. Um, I think because of the decentralized um, power uh, uh, within Washington, the fact that no one is responsible for deficits, for example, you you get worse behavior. You have, you know, you have the House, you have the Senate, and you have uh, the executive branch. Uh, they all blame uh, failures on each other. When Hurricane Katrina happened, they all, you know, the, the three the branches pointed fingers of blame at each other. The states blame the feds. The feds blame the states. You saw with uh, we, you see with other crises like the water crisis in Flint. All, there, there's so many different layers of government in America that they all point fingers of blame at each other. I do think that, so, you know, I grew up in Canada with a British, which has a British parliamentary system. The prime minister is essentially a short-term dictator in Canada. If he is a majority in parliament, uh, there's good and bad there. The good is, is that everyone knows who is responsible for decisions in Canada, uh, you know, for federal programs. It is him. It is the prime minister. If you have a big uh, deficit or debt, everyone knows who is responsible. Um, that is, you know, in the United States, you know, the, uh, the Democrats blame the Republicans for the deficits because of the tax cuts. The Republicans blame the, Dem- the Democrats for their uh, extra spending. Uh, and uh, so I-, I think this lack of responsibility is a real is a real problem and yet one more reason to move power out of Washington back to state the state level.
0: That might answer my, my next question, which was it seems like a lot of these inefficiencies we've talked about would also apply to other organizations right like we have there are corporations in the united states that have bigger stock stock market caps than the gdp of, of whole countries and are enormous with huge numbers of employees and levels of bureaucracy and all that do we see these same kinds of problems are these problems unique to government or or would the arguments that you're making now also say it's probably we're probably going to get more failure in an extraordinarily large corporation than we would in a small corporation.
1: Yes, big corporations have bureaucracy problems too. Of course, I've worked in some of them, and, and you folks may have uh, too. They have big they have big uh, bureaucracy problems. However, they are less so than the federal government. And to give you one example, so the federal government has massive amounts of red tape or bureaucratic rules on everything. Someone can't, you know, send emails without you know layers of rules you know surrounding it. Um, why is that? It's because in the private sector it is easy for uh, headquarters to, uh, to make sure that their uh, regional divisions are doing a good, uh, they're doing a good job. Are they earning uh, profits? Uh, that is a basic metric that private businesses uh, can use. Um, and so and, and individuals on the ground in most businesses know that their job is to minimize costs and to maximize uh, revenues to serve their customers well. And private businesses, employees know kind of intuitively what the, the overall job and mission is. In the federal government, there is no profit maximizing. Customers are kind of a murky idea when you come to federal government um, activities. So there has to be more red tape or rules imposed on employees so that agencies kind of get the employees to work and do what's supposed to be done. So I And there's also this We have some detailed data on layering. And American American corporations have become a lot leaner with fewer layers of management over the last few decades just because of intense global uh, competition. Um, and we, there is good data on this. In the federal government, uh, there's a Brookings scholar called Paul Light who is, do- who has documented the, uh, the additional layering the federal government over recent decades. Uh, this is true from the Pentagon to domestic agencies. There's just far and far more layers of bureaucrats in Washington now with fancy names like deputy assistant, undersecretary of this and that and the other thing. So it, the federal government's got very top heavy in an inefficient way.
2: So this all sounds fairly bleak in a way, where we have a massive government that much of which would not pass a popular vote uh, through log rolling, with inefficient programs, with no oversight, with political incentives, bad bureaucracy, huge scope, and it just keeps getting bigger. Um, So aside, I mean, so one thing to talk about is, is federalism is one thing we should be pushing, but we we have these programs. Is there anything we can do? like with to the federal government because we tried to put in cost benefit analysis with uh, with Oira I mean is there something we can do to try and fix any of this, um, or, this or should we just be throwing up our hands and saying well it's not fixable you know one of the basic problems
1: here is that you know you would think so so one party is clearly today for much bigger domestic spending in washington that the democrats and republicans are really all over the map and I think one of the problems is there's never really enough people in one of the parties and say today the Republican Party who really believe in limited government. And I think part of the basic problem is the self-selection problem of the type of people who want to uh, run for Congress and get elected to, to the federal legislature. They're do-gooders. They want they have all this federal government power, and it sort of seems to them that, hey, we ought to use this federal power to do good for society. They're mistaken, uh, I believe, and, and the federal government, most of its actions do not do good. But that's what they believe. So there's a there is this huge uh, self-selection problem. I mean, there's been you know, we need structural reforms. Um, you know, Cato Institute scholars have proposed many of these structural reforms over the year term limits for members of Congress, you know, so that they um, it does seem that um, initially some reform minded people get elected to Congress but then after a period of years and having, you know, their office being flooded by special interest lobbyists year after years, they start, you know, they start buying the line that all these spending programs are good for the nation. Um, and so, and then, you know, and then we have, there's various ideas to impose to, uh, to pass a balanced budget amendment to the constitution or some sort of spending limits so that at least, you know, we can, we can force the politicians to make the sort of cost benefit trade off we talked about earlier. So, uh, I'm in favor of structural reforms. Uh, We haven't been very successful in recent decades in passing any.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.